Welcome to Pathways, your source for conversations about real assets, macroeconomics, and private markets investing. I'm your host, Daniel McCormack. Joining me to discuss a compelling area of infrastructure investing today is Macquarie Asia CEO, Verena Lim. Verena has been with Macquarie since 2006. In addition to her role as Asia CEO, Verena is head of Macquarie Asia's infrastructure fund. Verena was instrumental to Macquarie in establishing a market-leading Asia-Pacific infrastructure platform that has now been through several vintages. Verena, looking forward to talking about Asian infrastructure markets with you today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Dan, and happy to be here. When people think of infrastructure, they probably mostly think of developed world infrastructure, which are solid, steady growing assets such as gas and electricity distribution networks, ports, roads, airports, digital infrastructure networks. Asian infrastructure is those things, but it is also a little different to developed world infrastructure. Could you just perhaps explain to our audience who are not familiar with the asset class in the region how Asian infrastructure is different to developed world infrastructure? Yes, sure. Look, um, Asia is clearly a very diverse region with many markets at different stages of its economic development and investment cycle. I think the region can offer opportunities in in infrastructure that have that defensive characteristic and steady cash flows that investors typically look for. But given a lot of the markets within Asia are experiencing strong macro tailwinds, including increased urbanisation, population, income growth, digital transformation, and greater energy consumption, there is also a higher growth potential to Asia than other more developed markets. As an infrastructure manager, that just means there is a significant opportunity to deploy capital in this part of the world. Also, as a result of being a less established, higher risks are assumed compared with investing in developed market infrastructure, such as in Europe or North America. And so the risks need to be more proactively diversified and really managed across the geographies and sectors. So a little bit higher risk and higher return, you would say, just a little bit further up the risk spectrum. Yeah, I think that would be right, Dan. Thanks. Yeah. And you mentioned sort of this higher growth and and these more structural growth drivers. What are, can we just unpack that a little bit more? Like like what are the sort of long-term mega trends in Asia that are driving growth uh, in GDP, but also growth in infrastructure? Yeah, so we're really seeing three mega trends. Um, So urbanisation and consumption is probably one. Digitalization is another, and decarbonization would be the third, really. Now, these mega trends are strong also globally, but we believe they're growing even more quickly in importance in this region. So, look, energy demand is growing faster in Asia than anywhere else in the world, and digital penetration in this region is happening more quickly than what we are seeing in the rest of the world. And that's mainly because we are starting from a much lower base. So that that lower development starting point just I guess sets sets the stage for for more rapid growth. Um, and and okay, you also mentioned in your opening answer that you know it was a region where there's a lot of diversity by country. Perhaps we can we can talk about some of the different economies in Asia and what the different opportunities are. So starting with China, which is probably the logical place to start because it's the biggest economy in the region and one that investors have interestingly become quite cautious on in recent years because of President Xi's common prosperity policy and and the regulatory changes that we've seen around that. 
how do you see China and how does MAM like to focus in terms of capital deployment in China? Yeah, and this is obviously a very topical matter um, and something that we keep being asked by our investors as well. Look, we started investing in China in 2010. I would say it's been one of those markets where we've had to really evolve our uh, investment strategy as what had you know worked well in other more developed markets didn't really uh, produce the same results. So, for example, targeting more traditional regulated infrastructure assets like water and roads in China for us was a very different experience to what we experienced in other markets like Australia or even India. So the strategy for us pivoted to focus on businesses which were actually less exposed to regulatory risk. So so how was it different in those sectors? Was there more sort of arbitrary regulatory change that happened or regulatory change that caught us by surprise? Could you just tell us a bit yeah, more about I that? Yeah, I mean, I think there were probably a couple of things. So on, on roads, we actually made an investment in, in the toll road sector very early on. Um, and, you know, it was underpinned by the usual concession agreements that you would typically see. Um, and if you ran a legal ruler over it, you know, on the surface, it would have looked all pretty good to you, um, except that at one point in time, the government um, decided that they would nationalise the toll rates on all the roads in China. Um, and of course, there was a compensation mechanism in that compens- uh, in that concession agreement. But the enforcement of that provision was extremely difficult and challenging. So, um, you know, it, it was almost like a battle that you just didn't, you know, there was no, you know, point in starting with the government of China in that example. So it was more about, you know, what from an investor standpoint, what is it that we could do to potentially exit that investment without actually taking a significant loss as opposed to trying to, you know, enforce the contractual rights that we had in that concession agreement, which again is a very different proposition when you're looking at roads in the more developed markets, but also even places like India. So the effective compensation was just, you know, just much less really. In well, the we end. just didn't get any at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so there are the areas where you've encountered difficulties. So 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 what what do you what are you focusing on now then? Yeah, so as mentioned, because of those issues, and these are real practical issues, Dan, uh, the strategy had to pivot. So we're now focusing on businesses which are clearly less exposed to government risk, um, regulatory risk, and more towards end-user business models, which are more positively aligned to the key thematics. And that includes, you know, um, you know, at one point we were going into environmental infrastructure because that was an area that was uh, favouring foreign investment and foreign knowledge on these assets, uh, but also, you know, um, assets that are, you know, playing to the thematics that we just talked about, including digitalization and consumption. I mean, that makes a lot of sense from my point of view as a as an economist, because I think longer term China faces some some structural growth headwinds in terms of declining or worsening demographics. And and if it is to make a success uh, of that, you know, if it, if it is to continue to grow at rapid rates, I think it, it'll definitely have to pivot to an economy that is focused on consumption and focused on services as opposed to being focused on investment and, and exports. So, you know, you're really playing into that area that, that policymakers are likely to be focused on in terms of trying to unlock growth. So I think that makes a lot of sense. 
The other big economy in the region is India, which is very different to China in many ways. Better demographics, different type of government, obviously, and a country that is short of capital rather than flush with it. How have we approached India? Yeah, it's a good question. Look, you know, again, from a time period standpoint, we've been there for close to 15 years. So no, no really, no real difference to China in terms of um, experience. But in terms of target sectors and strategy, it's actually been the reverse of China for India. So the focus for India has actually predominantly been in the more traditional core infrastructure like roads, where there has been significant gaps or where there's been, you know, government asset monetization opportunities. So these sectors in India have been, you know, been in renewable energy as well as transportation infrastructure. Um, and if I can take the roads example that I just gave you on China, the again, you have a solid concession agreement in India, um, but what you have there is also a tariff mechanism that's pretty much automatic. So it's actually, the formula is actually stipulated in the concession agreement. Uh, usually you've got pass-through on uh, CPI or WPI in this matter. And there's no debate. So every year you've got the WPI data and effectively for the following year, your rates escalate by um, WPI. Uh, so it's very straightforward. Um, there's been no issue where the government basically decides to change uh, rates without, you know, actually actual compensation. We've had experiences where certain parts of the roads, um, the government, you know, state roads in this case decided that they would actually allow passengers to travel for free. But uh, and obviously that would have been devastating if we were in China. But in India, we were able to get compensation for that. So very different experience. And what are the growth drivers of, of volumes on roads? So, so I guess they're linked to, to GDP. GDP. But is it is yeah. it a multiple of, of GDP or how does that how does that work? Yeah, out? I mean it depends on the type of vehicle, but typically it is correlated to GDP. It may be one times GDP, one and a half times GDP, but again, it depends on the vehicle and sort of the corridor that you're operating at, uh, operating in, in relation to that toll road. That's really interesting. Switching perhaps to to other parts of of South Asia. So I'm talking about the Philippines and and Indonesia here, which have some similarities with India from an economic perspective, but also some differences. What kinds of opportunities do we see in those markets? Yeah, so look, in terms of specific countries within Southeast Asia, I'd say Philippines is one where we have seen recurring deal flow. Um, and actually have made sizable investments since 2012 across various sectors, including investing in one of the largest geothermal portfolio there. Uh, in terms of Indonesia, we've, um, you know, always found it to have a lot of potential given the very strong ma uh, macro dynamics. Dan, you would know this, you know, it's got young demographics, uh, very uh, young median age, um, uh, population growth, all of that, and that we, you know, we always like. But it's only really been quite recent where we've actually managed to make our first investment in digital infrastructure um, off the back of a more favourable foreign investment environment. You know, it's only been recent that actually both countries lifted foreign ownership restrictions on some of these infrastructure uh, sectors. So I think that's really allowed us to, you know, go from looking at volumes of opportunities to actually look at opportunities that are executable in both of these markets. So, 
Yeah, I think that's been a real, you know, change and positive change uh, from a private capital standpoint and, of course, from a foreign capital standpoint. And what drove that change? Was that was that a change of government? Yeah, so it's, it's really, you know, both, uh, I would say, has been driven by a change in government, so direction, um, wanting to actually encourage more uh, investment in infrastructure as a percentage of GDP, for instance, I think uh, was definitely one consideration. But also, I think in certain sort of markets like Indonesia, the last couple of years has been, you know, really quite tough with COVID. And so, you know, you've got situations where um, the governments, I think, have come to the realisation that um, they need to really accelerate some of these infrastructure investments, particularly in things like digital infrastructure. So that's allowed a lot more sort of flexibility in, in encouraging some of this, you know, foreign capital to come into these markets when that didn't exist before. All of these economies have a huge infrastructure need. You talk there about the infrastructure to GDP ratio, and it's just it's very low in all of these all of these countries. And you know they can really benefit from a long term growth perspective from you know better roads, better digital connectivity, and all of that. So yeah, a lot of externalities, as, as economists would say, that that come from that type of investment. Yes, okay, absolutely. Lastly, maybe and, just- and Dan, if you visit Philippines or Indonesia, for instance, it's obvious. As someone who wants to travel from one area to another, it's very obvious that it, it's definitely a requirement. Yes, well, if you've ever had to take a car in Manila, particularly during during peak time, you know you you, you fully appreciate the need for for more and, and better infrastructure. Absolutely. Switching gears slightly, talking about Korea, which you know North Asia is quite different to South Asia. It's different in terms of its demographics. It's different in terms of its growth drivers, and Korea. Uh, is a market that we've been in for a very, very long time. So could you just talk a little bit about what the opportunity set in Korea is and and perhaps some of Macquarie Asset Management's history in the country? Yeah, look, actually, Korea was our first market in Asia um, and we entered into Korea in the early 2000s where we, you know, again, saw the shift in Korean government policies embracing greater private sector investments in infrastructure Um, And as a result of that, that really led to the establishment of our first Korean transportation fund. And, you know, through that experience, we obviously, you know, also built a very scalable team there. And today we have had five funds invest in Core Plus opportunities, so not your traditional opportunities. And so Core Plus would mean things like industrial gas, um, storage terminals, city gas, for example, as well. So it's it's made us one of the largest foreign asset managers in Korea with a really solid track record there. Perhaps sort of turning to to sectors, we, we, we've talked quite a bit about the individual uh, countries so far, but in terms of sectors, for the region as a whole, do we have any particular sector preferences or are we sort of broadly sector agnostic and it depends upon the country that we're looking at? It's really the latter, Dan, because, you know, as you know, markets within Asia are definitely far from being homogenous. Um, and as a result of that, you really need that tailored investment strategy for each market. So each market will have a different bottom-up strategy compared to the others. So all the sectors that, you know, I gave as some examples, we obviously like and we target globally. But again, per market in Asia, um, you know, not all the sectors will be, you know, will be the ones that we invest in, as mentioned, you know, even the difference between China and India, it's very obvious. 
So I'd summarise all of that by saying a lot of opportunities in the region and you know, varies clearly by, by market, but lots of growth, lots of opportunities for infrastructure deployment. But that's one side of the investment equation. But but what about the risks? What, what do you think are the big risks that investors should be aware of or that need managing when investing in infrastructure in the region? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the risk, um, obviously, every single asset we need to um, do due diligence on the business-specific risk. But I think, you know, if you're talking about more generically in Asia, the big risks remain to be legal, regulatory and political stability contract enforcement, um, partner risk, and more broadly speaking, governance and WHSE standards. And I think the best way really to mitigate these risks is to obviously have local presence and a team that can really assess these risks properly during due diligence, but also uh, have the ability to navigate with the relevant stakeholders when these issues actually arise. And I guess the presence of those risks is that is that one of the drivers of MAM's approach to the region and, and the way that we do business there? So could you perhaps just, just talk readers through, talk listeners through what MAM's business model is in the region and, and why we do things the way we do? Yes, look, we've had the benefit of investing in infrastructure across these markets over the last really two decades. And look, during that period, our investment strategy has really evolved. And although we still continue to learn, uh, we now have, a, I think, a better idea of what works and what actually doesn't. So I think in terms of our business model, we, you know, we operate on really two key principles. The first one is really having that local presence in the target markets. We believe that having predominantly local staff who can speak the language, understand the culture and its nuances is really the strength of the platform. And it really results in the team leveraging local relationships and knowledge to source as well as manage investments across Asia. The second one, I think, is really to have that tailored investment strategy per market that I just talked about, which really allows us to be more agile um, it allows us to source proprietary transactions and have that execution capability to pursue larger and complex transactions. And I think that's becoming increasingly important as we're also seeing more competition and flows coming into this part of the world, which, you know, I've been here for 15 years. I haven't seen as much um, in that period as, as we are seeing now. That all makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, and, and matches, it's it's sort of matching the business model with the risks and, and with the opportunities that are that are there. All right. I know, I know recently you've been spending a lot of time on the road talking to investors about, about the Asian region and, and, and institutional investors at that. What are the most common questions that you get from institutional investors? Like what are the, what are the topics that, that come up most often in your discussions with them? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, thinking back, um, the typical questions we get a lot is, you know, why do, you, why do we invest in Asia? Is there really a risk premium differential in the returns that you are getting in Asia um, compared to developed markets? Um, the strategy and the investment environment in each market, because, you know, obviously investors know that each market within Asia are clearly different. Uh, the impact of the macroeconomic environment, and that's obviously something that's very topical, as you know, right now to investments and fund performance. Um, the increased competition in this market in terms of capital and whether um, there's enough opportunities to go around. 
Um, and also because um, the local understanding is so important, uh, we get a lot of questions around the team and, you know, how we're motivating our teams um, and retaining team in this current environment. I think that increased focus on macroeconomics is is not unique to Asia, right? That is going on in the West as well. I, I field a lot of questions these days about macro from clients as it relates to Western Europe and the US. The macro environment is just more volatile now than it's been for, for quite some time. So I understand it probably disproportionately affects Asia, but I, I think it's not, it's not unique to Asia at the moment. Okay, we're, we're approaching time. Really interesting conversation, Verena. And really, I think we probably only scratched the surface. But you know, thanks very much for coming on. I hope we can revisit some of these topics again soon. Perhaps just as, as a parting thought, given your sort of extensive experience in the region, could we perhaps close by you giving listeners sort of the top three things that, in your experience, are key to successful infrastructure investing in Asia? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the top two, we've already touched on it. So local presence, tailored investment strategy. And I think the third thing would be making sure from a portfolio construction perspective, we have diversification. And that's been really important even in the last couple of years with COVID. So those would be my top three things to uh, successful infrastructure investing in Asia, Dan. Yeah, and I guess if you're, if you're investing in a fund, the fund naturally gives diversification, particularly if within that fund we're deploying that capital across a broad range of sectors and across a broad range of markets within within the region. So it gives you gives you exposures to different GDP, exposures to different currencies, and that sort of you know hedges it out in a in a basket sense. Absolutely, great. That does it. That does it for the show today. Thanks very much, Verena, and thanks everyone for listening. Please be sure to keep an eye out for upcoming episodes of Pathways. And look to subscribe to us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This recording is intended for financial professionals and institutional investors only. This is not intended for use with the general public. The views expressed in this podcast represent those of the speaker and are subject to change. Nothing presented should be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or follow any investment technique or strategy and does not constitute advice, an advertisement, an invitation, a confirmation, an offer or a solicitation to engage in any investment activity or an offer of any banking or financial service. Throughout this presentation, various securities and companies are referenced. Examples given are for illustrative purposes only and were not chosen based on performance. This is not a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. All examples herein are for illustrative purposes only and there can be no assurance that any particular investment objectives will be realized or any investment strategy seeking to achieve such objective will be successful. Past performance is not a reliable indication of future performance. Before acting on any information, you should consider the appropriateness of it with regard to your particular objectives, financial situation and needs, and seek advice. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to the accuracy or completeness of the information, opinions, and conclusions presented. In preparing this recording, reliance has been placed without independent verification on the accuracy and the completeness of all information available from external sources. Macquarie Asset Management is the marketing name for the Asset Management Division of Macquarie Group. 
Investment products and advisory services are distributed and offered by and referred through affiliates, which include Delaware Distributors LP, a registered broker-dealer and member of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Macquarie Investment Management Business Trust, a Securities and Exchange Commission registered investment advisor. Investment advisory services are provided by a series of Macquarie Investment Management Business Trusts. Other than Macquarie Bank Limited, none of the entities noted in this podcast are authorized deposit-taking institutions for the purposes of the Banking Act of 1959 from the Commonwealth of Australia. The obligations of these entities do not represent deposits or other liabilities of Macquarie Bank Limited. Macquarie Bank Limited does not guarantee or otherwise provide assurance in respect of the obligations of these entities unless noted otherwise.